Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Donald Trump canceled the North Korea talks. The president says the U.S. is more ready than we've ever been before for military action. He also says nobody should be anxious. We'll think through Trump's extreme diplomacy. Also, I'll chat with Ireland's Druid Theatre Company about their production of Waiting for Godot, and in our global activism segment, the rescue work of the Samburu Girls Foundation. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Today, citing tremendous anger and open hostility, Donald Trump canceled talks with Kim Jong-un. I've spoken to General Mattis and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and our military, which is by far the most powerful anywhere in the world, that has been greatly enhanced recently, as you all know, is ready if necessary. Likewise, I have spoken to South Korea and Japan, and they are not only ready should foolish or reckless acts be taken by North Korea, but they are willing to shoulder much of the cost of any financial burden, any of the costs associated by the United States in operations if such an unfortunate situation is forced upon us. Monday, Vice President Pence appeared on Fox News and talked about North Korea. It would be a great mistake for Kim Jong-un to think he could play Donald Trump. Uh, so clearly the president's still willing to walk away. Well, there's, there's no question. But, but look, it's, um, we hope for better. We really, we really hope that Kim Jong-un will, will uh, seize the opportunity to dismantle his nuclear weapons program and, and, and do so by peaceable means. Um, you know, as the president made clear, um, you know, this... Uh, this will only end like the Libyan model ended if Kim Jong-un doesn't make a deal. Some people saw that as a threat. Well, I, I think it's more of a fact. A North Korean official called the vice president's <sighs> remarks ignorant and stupid. With me now is George Lopez, professor emeritus at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. He served on the U.N. Security Council Panel of Experts for North Korean Sanctions, and he's written widely on the sanctions issue. Thanks very much for joining us, George Lopez. Good to be with you, Jerome. Did we just cancel the talks? The United States just canceled talks with North Korea over name-calling? Well, on face value, it, it seems that. I think it's a surprise that it wasn't a delay. I think many quarters had indicated that both sides didn't feel that the communication between them was adequate. Um, I'm sure this catches the North Koreans by surprise because they have uh, dozens of journalists there watching the implosion of one of their uh, key testing tunnels. And uh, they feel on their side that they've given a number of concessions. And the rhetoric of John Bolton in the weekend before Mr. Pence's comments Uh, was a sort of second doubling down on the Libya model, which, if you're a North Korea watcher, has special uh, relevance and flies in the face of President Trump's own uh, 
discussions uh, with the media this week in which he said, uh, look, uh, I've assured Mr. Kim that he will survive. We're not interested in in demoting him or compromising his rule of his country. And then you have the vice president continue to talk about a Libya model. So the mixed message plus the uh, reaction, understandably, by the North Koreans who always react to American military exercises of the introduction of the B-52s to the ongoing exercises now with the South, all of that ratcheted up the rhetoric on the North Korea side. But anybody who's been watching this would say, well, we've been here before. Isn't this kind of the uh, ups, the, the, the kind of top side of the, uh, the rhetorical and, and not a surprise to see both sides jockeying for position as they come to the summit? So the cancelization versus a delay is, is a real surprise in many circles. President Trump said he's talked with the Japanese and South Korean leaders about this apparently. And at the same time, he says that, you know, he's maybe opening more talks down the road. Hopefully positive things will be taking place with respect to the future of North Korea. But if they don't, we are more ready than we have ever been before. What, what do you make of what he's, what he's doing there? Uh, a strategy of chaos and confusion, which may have certain intentional strategy behind it, but I think is more off the cuff than presidents usually speak. Uh, The notion that President Moon was there in Washington 48 hours ago, and we had no hint of this kind of approach, is indicative that a lot of this happened within the White House in, in the last 24 hours. I think if you take it face value, The president's words that uh, the insults against Mr. Pence's comments uh, up the level of hostility to a point at which we couldn't have a meeting. Um, If we take that at at very face value, then it means that we had no solid diplomatic strategy by which we would deal with anticipated what should have been anticipated increases in North Korean rhetoric as you got closer to the summit. Well, uh, what's going wrong with U.S. diplomacy? Because North Korea was looking like the Trump administration's big success story. They had used sanctions to bring extreme sanctions to bring North Korea to the table and get them to talk about denuclearization of North Korea, which is something a lot of people didn't even expect they'd talk about. Uh, uh, How did this strategy that was succeeding end up uh, in a puddle? The gorilla in the room from the start was both sides knew they had very different definitions of what constituted denuclearization of the peninsula. The North would always talk about of the peninsula and the U.S. would talk about of North Korea. And many of us expected that that would be the big bump in the road when the two leaders sat down, that it might be pushed at the edges before the summit would make good sense as well. The uh, most credible foreign policy understanding of the cancelization this morning is what Mr. Pompeo said before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee just about an hour ago, which is that uh, they didn't receive corresponding assurances from the North Korean side that there was adequate preparation to address denuclearization. So that's one way to look at it. Let's take that at face value. That again predicts to not a cancelization, but a a, a kind of Let's say, let's bump it another month down the road and and work harder on the preliminary. Many of us have been concerned that there wasn't enough staff on the U.S. side 
to actually deal with these preliminary dynamics. The second level, Jerome, is even more disturbing. You know, we're 48 hours away from the president of South Korea having been in Washington and had pretty assuring talks with Donald Trump that this would go forward. Yes, they probably explored uh, some of the tensions and, and maybe even the lack of preparation that Mr. Trump was feeling on the North Korean side. But Mr. Moon returned home thinking that things were still moving ahead. There's one report this morning that neither Japan nor South Korea had been consulted before the cancelization and knew about the letter literally as the ink was drying on on the page. Uh, that's that's pretty damaging in terms of uh, what went wrong, and that is that we've lost concern for where the allies are in this. The third dilemma, uh, no doubt, will appear in commentary soon, and that is, is there palace intrigue here? I mean, this is a kind of interesting alliance of Pence and Bolton with Mike Pompeo doing all the heavy lifting by going back and forth to Pyongyang and talking with Mr. Kim, seemingly uh, as the guy who has the ear of the president and who's one-on-one with the president on what's going to happen in negotiation. Is the very, very quick cancelization, is that uh, intentional sabotage by Bolton and Pence, or is that uh, just incredibly poor communication in this still pretty new upper-level team between Bolton and Pompeo. I think the terrible reality is that all of the above uh, may play some role. We just don't know the weight of which of the three or four factors uh, may be most significant. You know, George, a lot of people thought that the conventional wisdom here was that you put the North Korea thing on ice and the president uh, is going to, uh, you know, move forward with war rhetoric on, on Iran. But he, he, you know, even, you know, I saw a quote the other day, even for John Bolton, it's pretty strong tea to have a war in both North Korea and Iran. Uh, did, that just didn't um, stand up. The conventional wisdom that you only have one uh, hot problem is just doesn't seem to matter to the president. It's a big leap from the hot problem and the incredibly uh, strong sanctions on both sides and uh, this kind of escalated rhetoric and and a war. Um, I hope the the gap between that stays wide, and I think we all would do. But the notion of dealing with two major enemy thresholds uh, in which there are unique players in both regions that you have different levels of alliance with, I think is – I hate to say it, above the capacity of this White House. Um, We know for almost a month that Admiral Harry Harris has been uh, chosen by Trump to be the ambassador of South Korea, but his name still hasn't been put before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. One of the great faux pas of this administration and its treatment of Mr. Moon is that there's no U.S. ambassador in Seoul for moments of crisis like this to convey directly to Mr. Moon what the president's thinking is. So, so the management of these crises, uh, I think, plays to the president's personality. Some would even say the management by chaos is his style, and he believes he's always putting a foe on, on more defensive than he himself would ever be, and that sooner or later, uh, your level of power is going to triumph in this. But uh, we're, we're treading on very thin ice in, in both realms, I'm afraid, and, and the ability to manage both may be beyond the capacity of what still is a is a staff that's forming under Mr. Bolton. 
I'm talking with George Lopez. He is Professor Emeritus at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at Notre Dame, and he served on the United Nations Security Council panel of experts for North Korea sanctions. I wanted to uh, talk a little more about what's happening with Iran and uh, Iran sanctions. Um, Ayatollah Khamenei uh, talked yesterday about Europe, and he gave a six-point ultimatum on the nuclear deal to the Europeans, and he wants them to really repudiate the U.S. in a U.N. resolution. He wants, um, you know, or wants the Europeans to make up for any damage to Iran's ability to export petroleum. He wants European banks to guarantee both government and private financial transactions, uh, you know, no blacklisting of Iranian banks. And uh, a lot of people say that, um, <laughs> you know, Europe's in a between a rock and a hard place now. And the, the U.S. and Iran are making uh, pretty tough demands on them. Yeah, I, I thought that was very uh, ill-conceived by the Ayatollah because Rouhani's uh, statements – were much more measured. Rouhani understands that the Europeans have been very much about the business since the cancellation of the deal on the U.S. side of trying to figure out what to do. And there's very strong sentiment in Europe, particularly about maybe creating its own financial house to to deal with uh, all of the transactions that have gone between European banks and the Central Bank of Iran. Uh, there's also a political as well as economic pushback against this notion of the U.S. engaging in these secondary sanctions. And the oil markets are, are nervous about what happens in terms of the financing of Iranian oil. All of that's been duly considered by the Europeans, and they're still evolving the position. Um, the, the Ayatollah, I think, made a strategic mistake here. And uh, at the same time, if he's looking at what's happening in the United States with 12 demands coming from Mr. Pompeo, of a kind of outrageous uh, level, they may feel that they need to operate at that level of uh, rhetorical threat. But um, there's a lot to play out here. I don't think the Europeans will go by way of the uh, Security Council as the way to deal with this. I think they will find a way to convey this and especially explore the usual uh, allowing of exemptions on Treasury for uh, 180 days of some of their, their firms to operate, and we'll see where the dust settles on this. But uh, this is an escalation that's going at a much faster pace, of course, than the North Korean one, at least at least today. Well, where do these secondary sanctions uh, go? I, I think when most people hear about secondary sanctions on European uh, organizations, they, they don't, it's kind of amorphous to them. Yeah, well, it's... Um, it, it, it's always been a possibility as we move to greater and greater use of financial targeted sanctions, and particularly when you weren't in the business of uh, putting an embargo on big products. You went after the ways that the uh, products were financed through central bank systems or through powerful regional banks. And so let's say uh, deals that Volkswagen or Airbus have on the Iranians uh, on the European side with the Iranians, uh, those things are paid for through the exchange mechanisms that both countries use. And and that, that use of those exchange mechanisms is what the targeted financial sanctions go after. So over the last four or five years, Treasuries had the ability to do this unilaterally, to begin to blacklist those European or other banks and thereby penalize American banks if they chose to deal with them. So it puts the Europeans in a, in a place in which 
Are you going to preserve, let's say, the $2 billion worth of business you have with the Iranians versus the $22 billion you have with the Americans? And the secondary sanctions are huge financial leverage that you'll always be able to guarantee the bank in Europe and the, and the business will choose the American side. Is there anything that's happened so far that indicates to you that the U.S. Uh, isn't going to give exam- exemptions, that the U.S. is going to play hardball? Oh, I think that's exactly the strategy um, to the extent to which is there in any strategy in this. I think it's to pound uh, the Iranians quickly at, at, at any point in, in the game that they can. Just this morning, Treasury issued uh, uh, a, a rubric which was sanctioning and issuing travel sanctions on the private plane company that flies Mr. Rouhani around. Uh, that's a travel ban that means that if you're an airport that grants Rouhani's planes landing, uh, you yourself can be subject to these secondary sanctions in which American uh, airlines companies will boycott you or the United States doesn't have to accept planes that come out of your airport. This is a very far-reaching uh, kind of sanction and deeply, deeply personalized so I think you're going to see this at, at every level, uh, which is why I think Pompeo has gone full steam ahead with the secondary ones as well to convey to the Iranians that uh, the noose is going to tighten. But uh, they're not without their own countermeasures. And again, as we talked about, Europe itself is going to rebel against part of this. And, and, and a lot of the drama is yet to play out. There are many who believe that the uh, the sanctions dilemma, and, and I'm one of them, uh, is only successful if you have adequate diplomacy and an opening by which you can say, let's talk about some of these constraints and we'll see where we can go for them. And uh, they've been unwilling to, uh, to sketch that out, at least at this point. And I think they're going to let the hammer continue to pound until they hear somebody crying uncle in the Iranian side. And we'll see where it goes from there. George Lopez is Professor Emeritus at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at Notre Dame. He served on the U.N. Security Council Panel of Experts for North Korea Sanctions. He's written widely on sanctions. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about North Korea and Iran. Thank you so much, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk theater and talk about the revival of Waiting for Godot at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot is the original play where nothing happens. It's also a timeless classic. Ireland's Druid Theatre Company brings its production to the Chicago Shakespeare Theatre through June 3rd. With me is Doreen Saig. She's manager of international programs at Chicago Shakespeare Theatre Company. Thanks for joining us. Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. Uh, Tell me something about the Druid Theatre Company from Ireland. 
So they are one of the world's preeminent acting ensembles. They are fantastic. Um, Druid was founded in 1975 by their current artistic director, Gary Hines. Uh, and they have toured the world, bringing some of the great uh, writers of the world, uh, their work all over. And you really, you can't get acting finer. Uh, Tell us something about Gary Hines. She is uh, a woman and has won a Tony Award. She is a woman and has won a Tony Award. She is, was the first woman to win for Best Direction um, for uh, The Beauty Queen of Lanana in, in 1998. Um, she's truly a trailblazer uh, and is brilliant at creating sort of intimate, quiet, breathtaking moments, um, which is a lot of what you'll see in Waiting for Gatto. Now, uh, in Waiting for Godot, it's uh, something that I've seen it done pretty sparse at times, Mm -hmm. but the set for this is not sparse. It it sounds like it's kind of dramatic. It is. It's kind of both sparse and dramatic. It is... um it is uh, one of the most beautiful things I think I've seen inside the Courtyard Theater. It is a light box. Um, and so you're, the way that this, the theater is shaped, you're sort of peering into this world. Um, the design is really, really simple, but you're sort of it's, – it's lit up and dramatic. There's one tree and one rock. The tree is made out of um, uh, nails, rusted nails. So there's really beautiful detail work. Um, but at, at, at first glance, it's very simple. It's really lovely. And the reviews of the this have been really spectacular. Mm-hmm. And all over the world, it, it, it comes and people are happy. Yeah, it's um, it's a really special piece. I have to say, um, and maybe I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm not always the biggest fan of Beckett. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, and this show is really something special. It's um, it's funny. It's uh, it's it's quite moving. It's it's uh, really tense and intimate in ways that I haven't really experienced this play to be. Um, so it's, it's a, it's, we wouldn't, I think, um, bring this kind of production to Chicago unless it was something truly special and spectacular. Why do you think it speaks to so many generations? Because it's been, go- it started in the early 50s, this play came out and, and people keep mounting it. Yes. Um, it's a good question. I think it's, you know, the story when it's done well, really speaks to people um, about uh, yearning and 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 not understanding um, what exactly you're waiting for, right? What is the who is Gatto? What is Gatto? Um, but but knowing that that life is full of that, full of 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 waiting and uncertainty, and so I think that that question speaks to generations, no matter what's going on in the world or, or what our times, what are happening in our times. Now, one of the things that's interesting is there's a role for a 12-year-old boy in the production, yeah. and the Druid Theater Company, as they tour the world, are just picking up 12-year-olds as they go along? <laughs> yes. Uh, it's a, an incredible opportunity for a young performer. In each city, um, they audition for a young boy to be part of, of the show because it's hard to, to tour a child around for six months at a time. Um, but it's an, it's an incredible opportunity to be on stage with these world-renowned performers and uh, and the young boy that we cast Zachary Fuchs is is fantastic um, so he's a local Chicago Chicago kid who's uh, getting to share the stage with these actors that's super fun I'm talking with Doreen Seig she's manager of international programs at Chicago Shakespeare Theater Company we're talking about their production of waiting for uh, 
Gado? How do you say it? You say you guys say I say I say Godot at the beginning. You say Gado. Well, I used to say Godot, but um, the Irish say Gado, and I, it might be their accent. But people have this big disagreement. We'll stick with Gado for now. <laughs> All right, waiting for Gado through June third at Chicago Shakespeare. Uh, you are the manager of international programs at uh, Shakespeare, and you've got a bunch of other things coming to the World Stage Program. Yes. Uh, so we had an exciting season this year, um, and next year we're looking forward to a whole slew of work from around the world. Um, We'll have a a trio, sort of a spotlight uh, on uh, companies from Belgium. So we'll have three projects, um, one called Big Mouth, which is about the history of oration, um, um, (laughs) 2,500 years of great orators. That is Big Mouth. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And then uh, another piece called Fight Night that's really looking at um, the structure of democracy and and our voting system. And then another uh, piece um, called us them which is looking at um uh the school um sort of uh massacre in Beslan um uh, told from the perspective of, of two students um now, that's the russian massacre that happened a, a few years ago that's right uh, that's, and uh, that sounds spectacular <laughs> I, i've never thought of somebody doing a play about a massacre before it is. It's a, it's a really interesting piece because um, since it's told from the perspective of, of two kids, there's a lot of sort of um, uh, light and hope in it. You know, It's really interesting because in, in Belgium, it was a play made for young audiences, um, which tells you a lot about, I think, wow. about uh, cultural expectations for young audiences in the U.S. versus in other in other places. Um, but so it's it's really done delicately, um, and, it, and it's incredibly moving, very physical, very dramatic. If people want more information about the World Stage Program, what do they do? They go to Chicago Shakespeare's website. Um, we have a whole slew of programs for next season, so you can catch our work from um, from Belgium, uh, from France, from the UK, um, from Ireland. We'll have another uh, company from Ireland next season as well. So visit chicagoshakes.com. Doreen Saig is manager of international programs at Chicago Shakespeare Theater Company, our neighbors here on Navy Pier, where they have two theaters, the Courtyard Theater and the Yard their uh, multiplex theater. I don't know what to call it. (laughs) Multiple venue kind of theater. Flexible state of the imagination theater. (laughs) Doreen Saig, nice to talk with you. Nice to talk to you as well. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the better world a better place. And today I'll talk with an organization that is rescuing girls in Kenya. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. 
Today we're going to talk with Dr. Josephine Kulea. She is the founder and executive director of the Samburu Girls Foundation, and it's in Kenya, and it helps young women escape situations that anyone would want to escape from. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about Samburu itself. Yeah, so Samburu is a place. It's also a community in north of Kenya. And we are actually one of the Ma'a speakers in Kenya because we have three Ma'a speaking communities in Kenya and most people just know the Maasai. So we are also a Ma'a speaking community but called the Samburu based in the north of Kenya. The Maasai are based on the south of Kenya. So our culture is the same. We speak the same language. We dress the same. So people cannot tell us apart, but we call ourselves cousins. And this is a traditionally patriarchal society? Yes. So Samburu is highly traditional. We still stick to our old traditions, good and bad. <laughs> we are so patriarchal. We still see women as um, just there to be seen, really, and not to be heard. And you, you won't believe it. In the 21st century, things that are still happening now affecting women and girls and the community thinks it's okay because we grew up doing these things and we've done it to earlier women why not these women so the things that you are working with in the Samburu Girls Foundation is you want to stop female genital cutting and early marriage and a practice called beating. Yes. So the Samburu Girls Foundation is a nonprofit based in the community of the Samburu. And we are reaching out to four counties of northern Kenya. And we are addressing child marriages where girls are married at 8, 9, 10 years old. And we are also addressing female genital mutilation, which is almost 90% among the community of Samburu. And the two are linked. After you get the cutting, you get married. Yes. Actually, they cut girls on the day of the wedding. When they are reported to us, we rescue the girls. Before the wedding is easier because we are rescuing her both from the cutting and from the marriage. But sometimes they report during or after the wedding, which means the girl is already cut. But we still rescue her just to prevent her from going into the marriage, which will lead her to giving birth early and sometimes dying at childbirth because they do die, a lot of them. So those are the two main issues and also what we call beading. It comes from the word beads, which is our iconic image and... That is a cultural practice where the young men, uh, the boys, are circumcised at 15 years and they have another 15 years before they're allowed to get married. So boys can start marrying from 30 years. So those 15 years of waiting, of being a young man, you're allowed to pick any girl in the village, buy them a lot of beads, put around her neck, and just have sex with her as long as she's not married because she'll eventually marry someone else. But this man will never marry her. The girls are also not allowed to get pregnant because it's not a marriage. So they end up getting pregnant and they go through crude abortions to get rid of the babies or they wait for them to give birth and then they kill the babies. So we also rescue those kind of girls either once they get beaded or once they are reported to us they are pregnant so that they do not go through the abortions or when they are going to give birth so that they don't kill the babies. So we have all these kind of children and we put them in a rescue center where they get counseling and we enroll all of them to schools. How do you go about 
rescuing someone from this situation? Are their parents involved? Are there family members? How do, what goes on? Yeah, so we have community outreach programs where, one, we use the local community radio where we teach the children, I mean, the community about their rights and the rights of their children because actually it's illegal in Kenya to marry children below 18 years and it's illegal to cut girls in Kenya. But the law has not been implemented to the latter to, because if it was, then no child would be married at eight years. No child would be cut. But then it's still happening. So we create that awareness. We bring in pro bono lawyers who train the communities. So apart from the radio, local radio program, we also go village to village according to um, the resources that we have, we are able to reach out to a few villages and just educate people one-on-one. It makes more impact. That's where they get our contacts and our information. And that's how they reach out to us. And they call us. They could call us. They could write us a message or just send a social media message. It could be on Facebook or uh, Twitter, wherever they find us. Because we engage also the few elites who've gone to school. Sambur is almost at 90% illiteracy level as a community. Mm. So that is also has been a contribution factor because most people are not going to school and they believe we've been doing this for long so why should we stop now so the people who are concerned especially the mothers are the ones who reach out to us because they don't want their children to go through what they went through and also there are a few learned relatives who are like my cousin is getting married please help us so we get information through different ways and in our outreach program we try to tell the girls to run where they could get safety it could be a church a school uh, a police station anywhere that they would feel safe or they would for those who are closer to us they would just come to the center so it's a combined effort we try to partner with the police sometimes it's difficult to work with them because they want to be bribed to do their job but we still push them to do it so it's a tough job I'm talking with Dr. Josephine Kulea. She's founder and executive director of the Samburu Girls Foundation. They're helping girls get rescued from female genital cutting and early marriage and beating. How did you escape this yourself? How did, if this is something that everyone was doing, what happened to you? Yeah, so I was lucky to go to school because uh, actually Samburu for the longest time has had development from the Catholic Church and it built the schools up up north, it built churches. So it literally brought the early development before it was the first government we knew. So my mom actually was the big reason why I was able to go to school because herself, she was taken out of high school, second year of high school to get married to my dad as a third wife. We are also a polygamous community. So she really felt bad because she had no choice, but she really wanted her children to go to school. So she fought for me and my sisters to go to school. And my dad passed on when we were in sixth grade, uh, when I was in sixth grade. And now we also have wife inheritance. So my mother refused to be inherited by another man because she knew that would mean this guy would just come and want to sell off her daughters and get the cows. So she refused that so that she could continue fighting for us. So she ensured that we went to school. And I grew up watching all these things and thinking it was okay until I left Samburu in fourth grade because my classmate was getting married and she was rescued by a priest who was sponsoring us to school. And we went to a boarding school in Meru and there is when I realized this community here is not marrying off girls at 10 years and this community is not cutting their girls. So what is the difference between them and us? So I went back to the village. I had one of my cousins who was beaded and I told my mom, this girl is going to school because I used to teach her every school break. I would teach her to read and write and she was brilliant and 
when schools were open and I told my mom, you have to buy this girl uniform because she must go to school. So that's when my activism started in sixth grade. And as we speak right now, that girl is a medical doctor in Kenyan, one of the Kenyan hospitals. And oh, wow. <laughs> that, that yeah, was your first rescue? That was my first rescue in sixth grade. So I went ahead to college and studied nursing and I wanted to work in my village and I came to work right in near my, my family and the other girls I rescued were my cousins. One was a 10 year old, was getting married and I took the police and went to uh, we got my uncle and warned him not to marry off this little girl. I took away the 10 year old to school and uh, two days later, I get a call and they are told, there's a wedding at your uncle's. I'm like, I have the bride who got married. And they said they replaced her with the younger sister who was seven years old. So oh. she had to be cut and mar- get married to the same man who was marrying the 10-year-old sister. So now we had to go back to the police and arrest my uncle and have him locked up. And we uh, looked for this other younger girl and it took us like two days to get her. So, And then that's when I realized if I could get my uncle arrested and have his two daughters go to school, then if that is the only way it could work for this community to take girls to school, then I'm going to arrest everyone and ensure all girls are going to school. So that is how I was able to create the Samuru Girls Foundation so that I could reach out to more girls and get more support to like educate all these girls. So, so far we've rescued a thousand girls and we are directly educating 326 girls. I noticed you were recognized by President Obama. Yes. I'm hopeful because of a young woman named Josephine Kulea. So Josephine founded Samburu Girls Foundation, and she's already helped to rescue over a thousand girls from abuse and forced marriage and helped place them in schools. A member of the Samburu tribe herself, she's personally planned rescue missions to help girls as young as six years old. And she explains that the longer a girl is in school, everything for her income, for her family, for this country, everything changes. She gives me hope. When he came to Kenya in 2015, yeah, I was actually a yearly fellow, a young African leader, the Mandela Washington Fellowship that he started in 2014, and I was in the pioneer class. So I met him and Michelle in Washington, D.C. during the leadership conference. And I also got to ask him a question there during the forum of 500 young African leaders in the room. And when he came to Kenya, he talked about our work. So I like uh, the way he put it because he was so passionate about women and girls being engaged at all levels of leadership and participation and we cannot have women being oppressed and of course wanting to develop like for example only men only without the women on the table so it was a good combination of what he's talking of what he was talking about and him referring to organization was really a blessing yeah. how is it going in the Samburu community where you work, do you feel like there is a change in attitude? In other places where there's been a lot of traditional practices, it seems like everything has to happen simultaneously. There's got to be education. There's got to be like a group movement to change. Is that going on? Yes. So there's been a lot of progress around the work of female genital mutilation, child marriages, especially around awareness only, because 
not everybody's courageous enough to do the fighting that we do. So I would say we are the only ones rescuing girls and the, everyone else just wants to talk about FGM and leave and no one wants to fight with anybody. But uh, we feel that it's the tougher job that gets things done and especially when you cannot tell a kid FGM is harmful and you leave her scared because you've just shown her how bad it is and how scary it can be. And then in a week's time or in a month's time, she's going to be cut because you've not educated her parents. You've not uh, told her where to run to when she's in trouble. So our program is different because it's an all-around approach. We educate the communities, that is both families and girls. We we rescue them when they're in trouble. We give them a shelter when they want to run away and feel safe. We educate them. We take them through counseling. And the most important part is we reconcile them to their families. So we ensure that all our girls can go back to their homes at some point. It doesn't have to be immediately, but we encourage the parents to come visit the girls while at the center. We encourage the girls to go home to their parents to say hi if they feel safe. And we also encourage, uh, because we know that once the girls are done with their education and become successful, they'll go back and help their families. So we want that unity to keep going, and that can only be achieved by ensuring that the family bond is not broken. I'm talking with Josephine Kulea. She's the founder and executive director of the Samburu Girls Foundation. You've been here talking with one of your supporters from Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, introduce me to Leslie Sager. How did you meet Leslie? Thank you. I met Leslie in January through a friend, and I'm sure she's going to talk about that uh, a lot. And she's really been amazing supporting our work, and we are working on uh, having our own girls' school because it's been expensive for us to take all these girls across Kenya and paying school fees to all these different schools. So community donated for us 15 acres of land, and we just have a dormitory right now, a dining and four classrooms. But the girls are squeezed because we have 80 80 capacity dormitory and the 300 of them are squeezing in there so we have like three to a bed so we need uh, more dormitories we need more facilities just to ensure the girls are, are comfortable so thank you for doing this <laughs> um, and Leslie's a faculty associate at the University of Wisconsin Madison School of Human Ecology and has been doing uh, outreach in Kenya for years how did you first hear about Josephine and the Saburu Girls Foundation I actually learned about them through my driver, who I've been using ever since I started going to Kenya in 2011. And he happened to know about the Samburu Girls Foundation because a very dear friend of his actually works with Josephine. And I have a nonprofit myself. Um, it's called Mary Go Strong. And my nonprofit really does align with the work that Josephine is doing in that we work on grassroots empowerment and improving the quality of life for girls and women around the world. But right now I focus on Kenya. So I got the chance to go visit her organization just recently, actually. I'd heard about her for a while and I brought students there. One of the things that we like to do is we like to try to figure out different ways that we can empower women through um, not only education, but other opportunities where they can actually create their own business or learn new skills. So I was able to bring my students there and they introduced the girls uh, different techniques for making their own solar powered battery operated lamps, as well as we brought them 
beads so that I could see what they could do in terms of doing beadwork because I knew that they were very talented, so I wanted to take on that opportunity. And so that's one of the things that we're working on is trying to figure out ways that we can encourage other skills in addition to education because a lot of the girls won't necessarily make it to university. We also tested a double-sided water vest that some students of mine did for carrying water because it's so challenging. How did you get involved in the the building project? That sounds like a big step. It's huge. So Josephine and all of her volunteers, they are volunteers, including Josephine, they have not been paid and have very, very little income coming in. And we're still waiting for a big grant or big donors. So everything is happening in piecemeal. So they have a dorm, and, and Josephine mentioned that they sleep three to a bed. And they have a dining hall, but they don't have a kitchen. And they don't have running water. And this is just a labor of love and passion for these amazing girls. So putting all of that together, I'm like, we have to make this happen. We have to make this campus work. And so we started to brainstorm about what this campus would look like and what it needs to be. So the goal is actually to make it the Samburo Girls Education Center. And the center is really important. Education is really important because we're looking at making it holistic in that it's not just a school for the girls, but it's also an opportunity for the community to come. So we're looking at providing opportunities for workshops, for events. We want to have a cultural center where we can honor the really great traditions of the Samburu culture. And they're still rescuing girls, which is very, very important. But we're also still appreciating what exists. And it's an important lesson for my own students to learn. So I do bring students. In fact, I have 10 of them traveling with me today. (laughs) Yay. Yeah. How do the students and, I don't know, the general public, people you try to enlist to help here, how do they take the whole topic? It's a little difficult. Some people might run and say, well, this is absolutely urgent, but other people may be too freaked out by it to really participate. That's a good question. So I think it's really urgent. And the reason why I think it's urgent is because Josephine's never going to stop rescuing a girl. Most people are very fascinated with the story. People are willing to give money, and they have been donating money. We did a fundraiser recently. We called it Step One Water. So what we're kind of doing is chunking it out a little bit. So Step One Water meant the first thing we need to do is get water on the campus. And then the next step will be food. So the next thing we need to do is get a kitchen. And then the next thing we need to do is get shelter. And then the next thing we need to do is get education. So if we chunk it out into stages, I think it's not quite as overwhelming. The other thing that we've been doing is saying, if you want, you can sponsor a girl. So for $600, you can sponsor a girl through school. For $1,500, you can sponsor a girl through school, get their health care, get their counseling, get their clothing, their food, and their shelter, and their transportation for a year. Um, and that, that actually seems to be working in that we're starting to get more sponsors. And we have their, the girls' stories out there. What about President Obama? Can't he sponsor somebody? You seem to have an in. I don't have his contacts. <laughs> I left the presidency. So if I'm in hometown now, maybe if we could get his contacts and have him sponsor girls, that would be lovely. If people want to participate, what should they do? Well, they can donate directly through the Samburu Girls Foundation. They can also donate through my own nonprofit if they're interested in a tax deduction, which is called Mary Go Strong. And it's based on the, the Mary Go Round system, which is an informal lending system. So it's M-E-R-R-Y, Go Strong. So our website is samburugirls.foundation. Either of those websites, you can reach out to us and support 
a girl to school because I believe a girl in class is safer than a girl out there. Josephine, where do you think you're going to be five or ten years from now with this? Maybe retired. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, in five years, we hope to have a full school, functional and running, and have all our girls and many more girls on board because right now the challenge is we are kind of firefighting, like just waiting for a girl to get married so that we rescue her because that's the little space we have right now. But I believe once we start our school, we could reach out to as many girls in the village right now who are not going to school. And every girl in the village is at risk because they get married any day. As we speak right now, some children are getting married and they're being cut and no one is bothering about that. And in 10 years, I expect most of my girls who are some already in university right now, even those in high school will have completed their college will come back and work for the foundation and for the school and just so that they can continue the ripple effect of helping as many other girls as possible. Josephine Kulea is the founder and executive director of the Samburu Girls Foundation. Leslie Sagar is a faculty associate at the University of Madison School of Human Ecology and has been doing research in Kenya for years and uh, working with her organization, Mary Go Strong. Thank you very much for joining us and talking about your effort. Good luck in the future. Thank Thank you you. for having us. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a bit about Ukraine. The BBC broke a story that Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's personal lawyer, took $400,000 to arrange a meeting between Ukraine's president and Donald Trump. Cohen denies the story, but it's sourced by a couple of sources. So we will chat about what's going on with that story tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. We're also being going to talk with a Kurdish filmmaker who's in town for an event at Northwestern. That's tomorrow on Worldview. Do you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast in the iTunes store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can click subscribe at wbez.org slash worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.